Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. So this morning we are starting on our second book, on the second chapter of Ruth. And um, before we look at chapter two, I just want to look at the context of uh, what we did. Uh, Graham mentioned a lot of this last week. And I want to look at the context, the historical context of when this was set and the people and what God was doing through the people and all those type of things. It's really important when you read the Bible to try and get the context right. What was happening in the nation why did God react maybe the way he did? What might you and I have done in that situation? How might I have responded if faced with the same problem or opportunity? And what should we learn from this story in Ruth? So I want to go back into Joshua 24:31 first of all. And it tells us a little bit about the nation of Israel. It said, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for them. You see, God's people were in a really good place, and the hearts were set on him. And Joshua had already brought the people back into the promised land, and it was a time of plenty and relative peace in the land. And then we find that Joshua dies, aged 111 years old, in 1245 BC, and that's recorded in Judges 1.1. And then for the next 400 years or so, Israel is governed by the judges. Sounds a bit interesting, the judges. But the Hebrew word here for judges means to govern. So they were governors. They were, not, they were not judges in the way that we would know a judge. They were more military leaders. But they were overseeing what was happening in the land of Israel. And there were 14 of them. And I guess the most famous of those that we would hear of would be Gideon and Samson, who many children's stories have been written about. So how did God's people react under the rule of the judges? Well, it wasn't particularly pretty. In Judges 2.16, we read then, The Lord raised up judges who saved them, the Jews, out of the land of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they prostituted themselves to other gods, and they worshipped them. When the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So the story in the book of Judges follows this consistent pattern. So over these 400 years, we could sum it up like this. Spiritual decline, military defeat, call on God, new judge raised up, military deliverance, death of judge, spiritual decline. And it goes round and round, as very often we see the, the, the Israelites going round and round the same mountains, exactly the same over these 400 years. In Judges 17.6, says this, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did, just as they saw fit. It was an absolute free-for-all. And that's the backdrop to Ruth as we come into the second chapter of Ruth in a minute. Here we find this lawless nation with no vision and no stability, who at the slightest trial turn their backs on gods and worship other gods and idols. So I thought about myself. How would I have reacted? And I wondered what happens in our own lives when we undergo trials of any sort, do we easily go into spiritual freefall? Do we remember the former days, the days before we accepted Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Lord, 
as the better days. It was easier then. I had more free time. I actually had a bit more money because I didn't tie to the church then. It seemed to be so much easier. But how easy it is to forget Jesus' sacrifice and his grace and favour over our lives when things are not going quite the way that we had planned them to go. Do we go into spiritual decline or do we, as we are encouraged to in Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 6, trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways submit to him and he will make our paths straight. So this morning, can I encourage you to trust in the Lord with all of your hearts and to lean not on your own understanding. You see, our trust is never misplaced when it's placed in God. The God who laid his hand on us and who ordained all the days of our lives will never leave us or forsake us. It's impossible for him to do that because he's made a covenant of love with us which can never, ever be broken. So briefly recapping on chapter one, which Graham brought to us last week. If you weren't there, then let me just give you a quick background here. There was a famine in the land at the time. And Elimelech, who is the husband of Naomi, and whose name actually means my God is king, rather than trusting in God's provision, he uproots his entire family from Bethlehem. And the Hebrew from that is the house of bread. So we've got this man whose name is the house, my God is king, uprooting his family from the house of bread. And he takes him across the border into Moab, which is a pagan nation. And he takes with him his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Kilian, who marries Orpah, and his son, Marlon, who marries Ruth. And then, as Graham said last week, ten years later, all three of the men were dead. So, in that situation, Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem to be with God's people again, just as the harvest was beginning, and Orpah remains in Moab. And as Graham stated last week, Naomi was not in a good place when she returned. She was full of anger and destitute. And it said this at the end of chapter 1, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Because you see, in the 10 years that she had been away from God and his people, she had become unequally yoked in a godless nation and she had forgotten the former things, the grace of God. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, and in my Bible, the heading there is warning against idolatry. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can have, light can have with darkness? And single guys and single girls here today, just ensure you're very wise in this matter. Seek out trusted Christian friends for advice. Now, I know that I've heard so many stories and that in my own family of my son marrying a non-Christian girl, but he said, I felt God was telling me to marry. I know that those stories exist, so I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But be wise when you pick a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And I felt if I was was preparing this about not being unequally yoked, I felt there was somebody here that was about to uh, go into a business partnership with somebody. And I'll just say there's a word of caution over that. Please be careful who you go into a business partnership with. Make sure, actually, they're a Christian. Do not be unequally yoked. So, we come into chapter 2. And if you're taking notes, I've entitled this, The Invisible Hand of a Great God. And there's two things I want to look at in chapter 2. Number one, the attributes and characteristics 
that single men and single women should look for in each other before making a commitment. And obviously that applies to married couples. If you're already married, these apply to you as well. And secondly, I want to look at God's sovereignty and providence over our lives. So chapter 2 is a start of a very specific love story. But then I was thinking, but the whole Bible is such a love story, is it not? You know, when you start in the Bible and you hear what God has done, he flung the stars into space and made the dry land and the sea. Yet in the same verse, basically, it says he predestined us. We were, we were chosen before the world began. And I'm starting to think, this intimate God that we serve, he's just wonderful. So the whole Bible is a love story about God sending Jesus to die in our place. Him raised again and us standing in the benefit of what he's done. But this chapter in Ruth is like the Mills and Boons part of the Bible. It's the guy and the girl, isn't it? It's like Mr. Darcy moments. It's like him coming out of the lake in Pride and Prejudice before eventually marrying Miss Elizabeth Bennet. Now I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure what he was in the lake for in the first place, but I'm sure, did he fall off his horse or something? Was it? But he was in the lake, didn't he? He came out of the lake, that's, that's the main thing. So it's a bit like this part of the Bible, chapter 2. And it's a great opportunity for us to look at the qualities that make relationships work. So let me just read. I'm going to read the first uh, 11 verses here. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let us go to the fields and pick the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered the field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted his harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does this young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained there from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't, don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you go thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And basically, if you get a chance to read the rest of that chapter, Bowers then starts to tell uh, Ruth about, he knows about where she's come from, she knows about her mother-in-law, etc. And then he starts to talk about um, his servants going to support her, and then he talks about giving orders to his men. And then towards the end of the chapter, we see Naomi, who's come back full of bitterness, suddenly start to understand about the provident hand of God upon her life and about on upon Ruth's life. So, let's get into this. Let's look at Ruth for a little bit and see some of the qualities we see in here. First of all, we see her devotion, her devotion to care for her mother-in-law. Because in verse 2, it says, Naomi does, com- does not command Ruth to get out and go to work, but Ruth says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. Ruth has committed herself to Naomi with an amazing devotion as she takes the initiative to work and to provide for her. 
Secondly, we see Ruth's humility. She knows how to take initiative without being presumptuous. In verse 7, the servants report to Boaz how she had approached them that morning. And she said, pray, let me glean and gather among the sheaves of the reapers. Now, in Leviticus 23, 22, we understand a little bit about what gleaning was. So it says here, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. I am the Lord your God. So the tenth the tithe around the edge of the field was never harvested, so it was always left to the poor to go in there and help themselves. And this is what we find Ruth doing. So Ruth does not demand a handout. She does not presume the right even to glean. All she wants to do is to gather up the leftovers after the reapers are done, and she asks permission even to do this. Ruth knows how to take initiative, but she's not pushy or presumptuous, but meek and humble. Third, we see her industry. She is an amazingly hard worker. Verse 7 continues. She has continued from the very early morning until now without resting even for a moment. And verse 17 goes on to say that she gleaned until evening and then before she quit, she beat out what she gleaned, measured it and took some of it home to Naomi. And they reckon it talks about an ephah there in the Bible. And that's reckoned to be about 40 to 50 pounds worth of grain. That's an amazing amount of stuff to do in a single day. There is no doubt that the writer wants us to admire and to copy Ruth's attitude. She takes initiative to care for her destitute mother-in-law. She is humble and meek and does not put herself forward presumptuously. Devoted, humble and industrious. These are worthy traits to look for in a prospective husband or wife. But let's look at a few more characteristics as we introduce Boaz. Boaz meaning strength is in him. Verse 1 tells us he's a man of wealth and standing. But more importantly, that verse, verse 4, shows us that he is also a man of God. Why Why else would we be told about the way Boaz greeted his servants? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. And if you want to know a man's true relationship with God, you need to find out how far God has permeated into the very detail of his everyday life. You see, evidently Boaz was such a God-saturated man that his farming business and his relationship to his employees was immersed in God. He greeted them with God. And it got me thinking, what about you and I in our workplace? And picture with me, if you will, uh, an open planned office with dividers everywhere. And someone walks in, your boss walks in, and he says, the Lord bless you to the whole office. And then up from behind all the dividers, pops like meerkats, the Lord bless you too. It just doesn't happen, does it? But it would be great if it did. So if you're a manager or an employer, or you have oversight of someone else, Do you bless them, or is it easier to leave your faith at home, I wonder? As the old saying goes, if you and I were accused of being a Christian and put on trial, would there be enough evidence to convict us? It's worth thinking about how we react in the workplace. There certainly was, in Boaz's case, he proved to be a generous, wise, and caring man. 
We see how in chapter 8 he gives detailed instructions to both Ruth and his own servants on how she is to be treated with favor. To the extent that Ruth says in verse 10, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Because Boaz knew all about Ruth, and in the natural he must have been aware of the law in Deuteronomy 23 that stated that Jews should exclude an Ammonites or Moabites from the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation. Yet I find it extraordinary as I research this story that Ruth, the Moabitess, firstly married a Jew, Marlon, and even after his death still regarded herself as a member of his family. She then married another Jew, Boaz, and from that marriage bore him a son who became the ancestor of King David. God does work in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. So let's just sum up on the traits and characteristics we see in both Ruth and Boaz. There was devotion, there was humility, there was industry, there was God-saturation, there was generosity, there was wisdom, and there was care. These are but some of the characteristics that men and women should look for in one another. So let's look now at God's sovereignty and providence over our lives. I believe that God orchestrates and even commands blessing over our lives when we are in the place of his provision. Throughout this chapter, we see God's merciful providence to Ruth and Naomi. Verse 3 says in my Bible, as it turned out, or you could say, and it just so happens, coincidence or providence, you must decide. You see, it just so happened that when they came back to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, and it just so happened that Ruth goes out into one of the fields to collect up the harvest. Naomi doesn't tell her where to go. Ruth just happened to turn up in Boaz's field. And as it turned out, we find that Ruth, a God-saturated man, and that he is there at the very time that Ruth is in the fields. And it just so happened that he orchestrates extra barley to be left behind for her to glean and for his men to look after her. I don't believe for one minute these are coincidences. And can I suggest that this is the invisible hand of a great God moving people and situations around that the glory may go back to him. When I first became a Christian, I used to believe in coincidences, but that time is long gone. And I was thinking as I was doing, as I was thinking about coincidences, was it a coincidence that my wife, who was then my fiancée, Julie, worked in an office with a lady who loved God so much she was praying for the entire office? Was that a coincidence? And then I was thinking, well, that woman then invited Julie to a, a ladies' coffee evening where Jackie Pullinger was telling her life about the walled city. Was that a coincidence? Or was it a coincidence that I got to pick her up and I was propelled to go into that room? Was that a coincidence? And it's just too much, really, to know that God's hand wasn't all over that situation. And eventually, Julie and I knelt down that night and gave our lives to God. Was that a coincidence? That's the provident hand of God upon our lives. And we have to ask the question here, what was happening to Naomi during this time? She came back, back a bitter woman into Bethlehem. And throughout the majority of the story, she remained convinced that God didn't care. God was, through Ruth, starting to show her otherwise. And you may feel like Naomi that God doesn't care or notice you and I. And nothing could be further from the truth. So wherever you are in God and whatever you've done, the best thing you can do is to come home to God and to the place of his provision. 
And it could be that those here today who are not including God in their lives and have been taking matters into their own hands for whatever reason. And it may be, humanly speaking, for very good reasons. And we see Elimelech. He said, I wanted to save my family. And he took them 40 miles away, 40 miles from God's people and God. And he put them out of the will of God. Wherever you've been and whatever you've done, God would say to you this morning, come back. You see, God cares so much about you and I. You don't earn his favour. You simply put yourself in a place where God can do what's in his heart to do. And that is to bless you and I. So get yourself to a place where God can provide and watch him do it. Why? Because God is at work even if you cannot see it at the moment. But then you think, well, if I could just see it, if I could just experience it. Naomi couldn't see it until it had happened. But God was working providentially, generously, and invisibly. This to the enlightened mind might seem like coincidences. It just so happened that way. Material provision is a spiritual matter. Our Father, who art in heaven, give us our daily bread. This is a tangible demonstration of God's grace. It's simply a wonderful gift. Izzy, I wonder if you can come back up with the band, please. So let me just summarise. One of the first questions I asked this morning was, how easily can we go into spiritual isolation? And do we remember the former days as the better days? Oh, it was so much easier then. And how quickly can we forget his wonderful sacrifice, his grace and his favour over our lives when things are not going quite the way that we had planned them? <coughs> or do we trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lead not on our own understanding? And remember what I said, that your trust in God will never be misplaced when it is placed in God. He will never leave you or forsake you. And remember this amazing love story. He who flung the stars into space cares so very deeply about you and I this morning. And then just see how God orchestrates and commands blessings in our lives. So whatever you are, whatever you've done, the best thing you can do is to come home to God's people and the place of his provision this morning. I just want to finish by reading this psalm over the church today it didn't seem to fit in this morning because as I said to Izzy before we started it was all about the power of God the line of Judah it was about his wonderful power working in our lives and I felt that's so right to remember that we need to remember God's power over our lives but what we also need to remember for some of us here is God's intimacy as well he's a powerful God he's seated on the throne the government 
is upon his shoulders, but he's a loving father as well. And some of us may have forgotten that. Times might be hard and you've almost that side of it's been blocked out. But I want to read this over the church and then I want to ask you to stand. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. I sit and when I rise you perceive my thoughts from afar you discern my going out and my lying down and you are familiar with all of my ways before a word is on my tongue you know it completely O Lord you hem me in behind and before you have your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Then a bit further into the psalm it says this. My frame was never hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Can you just stand for a second please? I can't this morning come anywhere close to the depth in that psalm for us. It tells of a God that's done everything, that knows every word on our tongue, knows every day of our lives, is totally committed to us in the good days and the bad days. In the former days and the days that we're in now, he was there. He never took a hand off you. He never walked away. He's the God of encouragement when we feel down. And it's so easy to forget the sacrifice. just this morning wants to remind us of his intimacy and for some of us here that might come as a shock you're okay with a powerful God the Lion of Judah you can get your head around that but in the, in the quiet times in the intimate times you sometimes don't be able to you sometimes can't quite get there any longer it just seems to be so unachievable so unattainable that God would love such as you and I. He just wants to reiterate that this morning. And so it's very simple, I think. But 
require something of us. Something to put our pride aside this morning. If we are to say, God, that's me. You know my frame. You know my walk with you is not good at the moment. And I need to feel your love again, Lord. So it's very simple, but maybe hard as well. I'm just going to invite you to come down the front. If you want to know how much God loves you, then come down the front this morning. If you want to be reminded of the depth and the breadth and the height of his love again, just make your way down to the front of the church. some respects if even if you don't come down to the front and there's no big deal about coming down there you're just saying God I just want a touch and from you again that I feel we're standing on holy ground this morning and I feel if you're able to do this please only if you're able to do it I feel we should be kneeling before God just in a sense of commitment to him and a sense of thanksgiving to him sense of honouring his wonderful name over our lives so if you feel able to do that please do that about you and about our relationship with you can never be replicated by anything else in this world we cast ourselves upon you again Lord we say come meet with us this morning Lord those that are down the front those that are kneeling down Lord those that are just weighing up what I'm saying and what the Holy Spirit's doing in their lives Breathe upon us again. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. The name above every name.
stand in awe of you this morning. folks that have come down the front and would just like to stay down here and just have someone to pray for them. Can, if you're a life group leader or in leadership in the church or you've just got faith this morning to come and lay hands on a brother and sister at the front, would you come down and do that now please? And if you want to respond to, to Ray's words or to Rupert's word about the kitchen and Ray's word about the blockages, please find Rupert and Ray afterwards please. We're going to end the service there but don't rush off if you don't have to. If you just want to stay and just dwell his Holy Spirit, then please feel free to do that. Thank you so much for coming. Please join us for a tea or coffee out the back. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday morning.